The Truth of Poetry Reflections on Virgil's Aeneid by Gil Bailey Produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 1 So the title of our overall series is The Truth of Poetry and the Poetry of Truth and what we're going to do is compare and contrast Virgil's Aeneid and the Gospel of Luke uh, each written a few decades on either side of what I regard as the crucial emphasis on the word, which means the cross, crucial and pivotal event in human history, which is the crucifixion. So the first part of the series, we will spend some time with Virgil's Aeneid. Today, I just want to do some preliminary things. Today, I probably won't mention Virgil after I do so here for a minute or two. Uh, I just want to talk about poetry and some of the things about poetry that we need to think about in order to appreciate where Virgil stands uh, in the history of the poetic enterprise. So the first part of the series is entitled The Truth of Poetry and deals largely with Virgil's Aeneid, and the second part is entitled The Poetry of Truth and deals with the Gospel of Luke. Given the fact that we have this title, The Truth of Poetry and the Poetry of Truth, let me begin with something that Edgar Allan Poe said, and he said it against the grain of the Romantic age in poetry, uh, during which time, which is still very much with us, during which time it was uh, felt that uh, poetry was synonymous with truth, that poetry was the truth-seeking device par excellence. And so here's what Edgar Allan Poe said. It has been assumed tacitly and avowedly, directly and indirectly, that the ultimate object of all poetry is truth. He must be blind indeed who does not perceive the radical and chasmal differences between the truthful and the poetic. He must be theory-mad beyond redemption who, in spite of these differences, shall still persist in attempting to reconcile the obstinate oils and waters of poetry and truth. End quote. Well, I would say that's both true and false. There's some truth to that, and it's not quite right. What makes poetry interesting is that, now I'm speaking here not of modern poetry, but of poetry as a, as a phenomenon in human history. What makes it interesting is the same thing that makes myth interesting, which is because they, they are the same thing in, uh, originally. Uh, which is both true and false. It contains elements of the truth, but these elements are largely overlain by reassurances that keep us from appreciating this truth, or that obscure it. So anyway, that's Edgar Allan Poe's take on things. Matthew Arnold had the other opinion about poetry, and he expressed it probably as forcefully as anybody else ever did. He said, for instance, in one place, quote, most of what now passes for religion and philosophy will be replaced by poetry, end quote. So that if religion and philosophy have truth-seeking or truth-revealing claims, uh, Matthew Arnold says, these will, these will fall, and poetry's truth-seeking or truth-revealing role will come to the fore. Really, that's a way of saying it will return. We will go back to poetry as the, as the path to truth. Well, poetry, of course, is very ancient. Howard Nimeroff, who's one of the great American poets, 
said, quote, poetry is a vast subject as old as history and older, present whenever religion is present, possibly the primal and primary form of language itself, present whenever religion is present. That really, the issue in a sense, because I want to talk about Plato here in a little bit, and Plato had a problem with the fact that poetry and religion uh, were, to some extent, in the same business. And it was terribly troubling to Plato that that was the case. Robert Graves says the function of poetry is the religious invocation of the muse. Its use is the experience of mixed exaltation and horror that her presence excites. This mix of exaltation and horror is precisely, I think, at the root of Plato's misgivings about poetry. You know, Plato didn't want the poets. He would have, he would have banished the poets from his republic. Uh, he didn't like what they were doing. He saw that they were doing, to some degree, what the priests were doing, what the religious establishment was doing, except that the religious establishment seemed much more keenly aware of what was at stake and what kind of discretion had to be taken. Whereas the poets, you know poets, they were fools rush in where angels fear to tread, or in this case, I guess, poets rush in where the priesthood uh, would never transgress. And what is that? It's the sacred. They transgressed the boundary between the sacred and the profane. And they mixed them together. And so you, the poets would be talking about the gods and people and their interchange and going la-di-da on about it. And meanwhile, the priests were over saying they should never come into contact with one another. They, the contact between the gods and humans must always be mediated by this, this very elaborate sacrificial uh, cult which always involves every transaction between the gods and humans, always has to be cemented by a blood sacrifice of some kind, which sounds crazy to us, but it was, it's very much a part of archaic religion. And so Plato was afraid that the poets were going to undermine religion. And he, in a sense, invented philosophy. I, I paint with a broad brush, as you know, uh, and uh, in, in my book, I do a little bit better than I'm going to do today on this subject, but let's paint with the broadest of strokes and say that Plato invented philosophy as an alternative truth-seeking device uh, to that of poetry. And in a, to some extent, some other of the early philosophers saw it as a truth-seeking device that, is, that was an alternative to religion as well. But nevertheless, Plato did not want to run the risk that poetry ran, in his opinion, uh, in terms of the religious tradition. And so he invented speculation, or I shouldn't say he invented it, but he, he franchised it for the, for the Western world, a philosophical speculation. Uh, and philosophical speculation didn't have the built-in deference that the religious cult had. The religious cult had this deference which had to do with the sacred. And one never approached the sacred without, without uh, elaborate precautions. The sacred could easily erupt uh, and become violent. All the, all the ancient sacrificial cults uh, are filled with the realization that this thing that keeps our society peaceful can be triggered and make it into a bloodbath. So we have to be very careful when we approach the sacred. And the priesthood uh, in 
virtually all archaic societies had this kind of respect for this sacred. Philosophy has a different kind of respect for the sacred. It's not that sort of sonic, numinous fear and trembling that uh, somebody like, for example, Rudolf Otto speaks of in his book on uh, on religion, the idea of the holy. Yeah, it's a great book. I mean, it's a it's a it's not very well theorized, but it's a great book for uh, for bringing to the fore a lot of issues about ancient religion. So philosophy didn't have it quite that way. Philosophy does is that, I would say, is that it goes in orbit around the truth. It doesn't break in to try to go back to the site. You see, it orbits it. And that's why it's endless. It's always an orbital operation. And you could say, I mean, if you want to elaborate, elaborate the metaphor, you could say, well, it's a, an elliptical orbit, so there are, there are times when it comes closer and times when it goes a little further away. And these, the fact that there are these seasonal changes in, in philosophy always gives rise to hope that we're making progress. Uh, but it always remains orbital to the event itself, to the truth itself that, that it's circling. And that's what it was invented to do, because it was invented to avoid the risk that poetry was running. And the risk, of course, is that the poets were going to expose too much. Ossip Mendelstam, the modern poet, writes the following, quote, Poetry is the plow that turns up time so that the deep layers of time, the black soil, appear on top, end quote. Now, it's a little bit of a romantic metaphor that he's using, but I think we could use it in a post-romantic way. Uh, poetry dredges up some of the past. The poetry is always remembering the past, and it dredges up the past, for the fascination and emotional interest that it has for us, what it tells us about who we are as a person or as a people and so on. Uh, but in digging up the past, you never know what you're going to dig up. You know, you, you go thinking, well, I'm going to dig up the past, and you look down there, and in your shovel is a, is a hip bone. And you realize, wait a second, I thought it was going to be a buried treasure, and it's a hip bone. This is, I'm, I'm being playful, but you see, there's, there's a part of this digging up of the past that is very troubling. And the poets were aware of that, or at least implicitly aware of it, you could say, because all the ancient poets began their poetry by appealing to the muses to guide them. They knew they were in the business of turning up time, as uh, Mendelstam says, turning up time, the deep layers of time. And religion had its form of deference, Philosophy had its orbiting form of deference, and the poets themselves weren't totally reckless because they appealed to the muses and said, essentially said to the muses, guide us so that we don't make a misstep. <clears throat> now the muses, <clears throat> the mother of the muses is Mnemosyne, and her name in Greek means memory. So the mother of the muses is memory, and the muses are in charge of all the ways of remembering, the various ways in which we remember in song and dance and history and music, which comes from the word, all the things that we eventually round up and put in museums where we remember the past. And when we muse about things, we think about the past. The muses are in charge of that kind of thinking. Now, the muses had, 
are the muses uh, support, to use a kind of computer age term, they support a certain epistemology, a certain kind of knowledge. They, they recollect the past with a, with a certain kind of sensibility. They have a way of bringing these recollections alive in such a way that we are proud of them. We feel good about them. We remember how we were brought together. They, they inspire us. That's why we, we appeal to the muses. They're inspiring. And we like them, and we build museums to put the artifacts that uh, they have inspired in, into and so on. The question, of course, is, do, is this epistemology that's, that's characteristic of the muses, how powerful is it? Is it powerful enough to get at the truth, really? The root word for muse is, is the root word for myth, which is mu, which means to close the eyes and close the mouth. So it's a form of recollection which is immensely deferential to what's being recollected. The muses know when to look away. They know when not to look right on the scene. And they know when to, to give it some kind of closure without having to probe it any deeper. The muses allow us to remember things, or to put it in New Testament terms, the muses allow us to see without seeing, to hear without hearing. Now, the New Testament term for truth is aletheia, which means to stop forgetting. So the, the mother of the muses is memory, but they remember in a certain way. So we have two enterprises going on in a sense. This is part of what we're going to talk about with the Gospel of Luke and the Aeneid. Two ways of thinking about our past, and one is under the guidance of the muses who are involved with the business of memory, and the other is under the guidance of, in the New Testament, the, the corresponding spirit that hovers over the epistemology of the New Testament is the paraclete, whose name means the defender of the accused. And the truth-seeking business of the, that's talked about in the New Testament, the Greek word, aletheia, means to stop. Lethe means to forgetfulness. And the negative prefix a means non-forgetfulness. So to, the truth in the New Testament means to stop forgetting. So we have these two epistemologies which share something with each other but are radically different in another way. And that's precisely why poetry and myth both tell a truth and obscure it. Now, Wendell Berry said something in one of his essays, which I will quote to you. It's not entirely apropos of what I'm trying to talk about right now, but it's close, and I want to just use it because it's a fascinating formulation. He says, to lose the scar of knowledge is to renew the wound. And somehow, I think this is at the heart of Plato's fear. Plato's fear is that somehow the poets will go into this business and reveal something that will take us back to a crisis which we have put behind us and bring it in, make it an immediate present-day crisis. Here's what I want to do. I want to go to something in Homer this morning and talk about it from the point of view of Plato's concern. Plato's concern with poetry is, Plato says, poetry is too revealing. He doesn't say that, but I think it's implicit in what is in his fear of poetry, that it might uncover things that archaic religion exists to veil. So I want to go to a very famous passage in Homer, and talk about it from Plato's point of view and see what we can see what we can see about poetry. 
Plato thinks poetry is too revealing. We might say it's not revealing enough. From one, from our perspective, or you could say from the perspective of the, of the truth-seeking epistemology of the New Testament, it's not revealing enough. So let's see what it does. What, what I want to do is go to the description in Book 18 of the Iliad of the shield of Achilles. This is a very elaborate metaphor in the Iliad, perhaps the most elaborate one in the whole poem. And it has, it means everything, really. It's a summation. It's, if it were Shakespeare, it would be a play within a play. It's, a, it's an epic within an epic. It's the story of what the Iliad is. It's a picture of the Iliad in anonymous terms. And Hephaestus, who is the divine blacksmith, the artificer, the creator, the fashioner of, of forms, is the maker of the shield of Achilles. And he begins by saying his first job, namely Hephaestus's first job, the divine forger, that's a nice term, the divine forger, his first job was a shield, a broad one, thick, well-fashioned everywhere. Now, Homer identifies with Hephaestus because the Greek word for poet means maker. And Hephaestus is the maker, the fashioner of representation. And so Homer clearly saw himself as Hephaestus. And so what's the first task? The first task is a shield. The first task that the maker of poetic fiction, his first responsibility is to protect from something. I mean, this is borders on overinterpretation, but nevertheless, it's a, it's maybe shouldn't be passed over too quickly. And then it says the maker used all his art in adorning this expanse, and in the very middle of it, he puts the sun, the moon, the stars, um, heaven and earth, the sea, and everything. The little center of it is a is a cosmology, but immediately after that and surrounding it is what he's really interested in which is two cities, the city at war and the city at peace. Now, I'm going to reverse them in, in the order in which they appear in Homer's poem. There's first the city of peace and then the city of war. I want to do the city of war first because I want to see, I want to contrast them and compare them. Uh, and I'll, I'll read through it fairly quickly. So here it is. This is the city of war. Around the city of war are in place two columns of besiegers, bright in arms, as yet divided on which plan they liked, whether to sack the town or treat for half of all the treasure stored in the citadel. The town is under siege, which means it's cut off. It's being starved to death. It's under siege. But the besieging power is itself divided about how, how this siege should proceed. Now, you remember, the Iliad itself is a story about the Greeks besieging Troy and and, and a division breaking out in the Greek camp between Agamemnon and, and Achilles. So this is already, you see, a, an epic within an epic. The besieging powers are at odds. So this, so we have two things. We have the, the, the people inside the town at odds with their attackers, and the attackers at odds with themselves. And this is, if we took the, you know, zoom lens on this, we would go down and find this little factionalism proceeding apace all the way through the ranks. Certainly that would be the case. Perhaps not at this stage, but nevertheless that's to be noticed. And then it says the townsmen would not bow to either, that is to say they wouldn't uh, give up or, or uh, surrender or split their, uh, their uh, wealth, 
So they secretly armed to break the siege line. Women and children stationed on the walls kept watch with men whom age disabled. All the rest filed out as Ares led the way and Pallas Athena figured in gold with golden trappings, both magnificent in arms as the gods are in high relief, while men were small beside them. So again you have this commingling of the human and the divine, which is no doubt what, part of what troubles Plato. When these had come to a likely place for ambush, a river with a watering place for flocks, they there disposed themselves compact in bronze. Two outlooks at a distance from the troops took their post, waiting sight of sheep and shambling cattle. Both now came in view, trailed by two herdsmen playing pipes, no hidden danger in their mind. The ambush party took them by surprise in a sudden rush. Swiftly they cut off the herds and the beautiful flocks of silvery gray sheep and killed the herdsmen. So, in order to break their siege, they went out and raided, the siege is starving them to death, they went out and raided the shepherds, nearby shepherds. When the besiegers from their parlaying ground heard sounds of cattle in stampede, they mounted behind meddlesome teams, followed the sound, came up quickly, the battle lines were drawn, and on the river bank the fight began as each side rifled javelins at the other, and then strife and uproar joined the fray and ghastly fate that kept a man with wounds alive and one unwounded and another dragged by the heels through the battle din and death. This figure wore a mantle dyed it with blood and all the figures clashed and fought like living men and pulled their dead away. So it's a total crisis at the end. It's just carnage everywhere. There's tension, rivalry that is, has broken out and the end result is a bloodbath. Now, I want to look at the city of peace. Before I do, remind you of another figure in early poetry who is more or less a contemporary of, of uh, Homer, and that's Hesiod. And Hesiod, in Works and Days, speaks of two kinds of conflict, two kinds of polemos is the Greek word, strife, two kinds of strife, the good and the bad. And Hesiod tried to figure out what, what made one good and what, what made one bad. And he couldn't quite figure it out, and we're still trying to figure that out. How does, how does our conflict create community? Well, uh, there, we're going to talk about all those things in the next weeks. So I don't want to get into them here, but let me just compare the city at peace now. So what I want you to see about the city at peace is the, what Homer was candid enough to see, which is that it is a city, not a city without strife, but a city that has all of the cultural tools for containing strife and even for turning it into powerful forms of social camaraderie. So, for example, the first thing we learned about the city of peace is that there are weddings in it. And weddings, quoting Homer, weddings and wedding feasts and brides led out through the town by torchlight from their chambers amid chorale, amid young men turning round and round in dances. Flutes and harps among them keeping up the tune and women coming outdoors to stare as they went by. Now, this takes a little footnote because weddings in Homeric, in a Homeric society were not what they are today. Two people meet on college campus, they fall in love, they decide to get married, it's all very romantic. It's not that way at all in, in a Homeric society. Ancient societies tended to have structures that required inter-clan marriages. And these were required, marriages were arranged, you know. And these were required for very important reasons. 
they made the link between these clans. They cemented, the clans were, because they were clans, they were separate clans, the tension was always there. And so the marriages were used as a way of clan A putting one of its own inside clan B, and clan B putting one of its own. And the, this, here's a little feminist analysis for you. It was the woman who was put in the foreign clan, you see. By and large, not always. There were some societies in which it was the other way around. But nevertheless, you have a little bit of... Uh, this is in the yin-yang symbol. You know the yin-yang symbol where you have a little dot and the black dot and the, and the white uh, teardrop, so to speak? Well, that's, that's what a wedding was. The wedding was this tremendous celebration which involved people of, of different clans which might be otherwise in conflict with each other. And they were enjoying this, this wonderful moment of camaraderie. So we have to see weddings not in a romantic modern sense, but as a way in which ancient societies overcame rivalry. Now, that sounds like I'm being a, I'm raining on a parade or something, but that's how it worked. We have to see it that way. And if you think I'm inventing that, notice what Homer does next. He's talking about the city at peace, and then he says, a crowd then in a marketplace, and there two men at odds over satisfaction owed for a murder done. One claimed that all was paid and publicly declared it. His opponent turned the reparation down and both demanded a verdict from an arbiter as people clamored in support of each and criers restrained the crowd. So what you have here, ancient societies are shame societies for one thing, and secondly, they are revenge societies. You take one of ours, we'll take one of yours. Or if it gets out of hand, you take one of ours, we'll take two of yours. We take two of yours, you take four of ours, and the whole thing just, the logarithmic process turns it into a bloodbath. As long as it's an eye for an eye and tooth for tooth, it has a dampening effect on violence. See, it's a form of social control, the revenge system. It's a pretty brutal form, but it, it was the form in ancient societies. And now we have someone who has been murdered, and the reparation has been offered, and the reparation might have been a, an actual human victim. So, okay, well, you take my cousin. Or it might have been some other surrogate offering. In, either, in any case, it's, it's turned down, and so we have this conflict. In other words, this could get out of hand. This is precisely the kind of thing. Why is Homer looking at this? He's showing this is the, precisely the kind of thing that produces bloodbath, and in this city, it's not. Why is that? How is that? And off to the side is Plato saying, don't get into it. Let's not talk about it. The less said, the better. Let's just say that the gods are smiling on that city. Let's not look at it too closely. And Homer's, Homer's not going to look at it too closely, but he's going to look at it closely enough for us to be able to see something in it. And not because we're smarter than Homer, but because we are, we are the beneficiaries of another epistemology. If we were still under the tutelage of the muses, we couldn't see as much in this poem as, as Homer put in it, much less as much as there is. But because we are the privileged beneficiaries of another kind of truth-seeking imperative, we see things in this text. This is what makes these ancient texts so marvelous, because now you, we can come back to them. It's like having uh, you know, the carbon dating process or something in archaeology. And once you have this tool, you can make tremendous discoveries, and it's not because you're smarter, it's just because you have this tool, you see. And we now have a tool, and so we can see certain things in there.
so anyway, the city at peace is not a city at peace in the way we uh, romantics would think of, well, with the way Rousseau would have it. Rousseau would have it that the city of peace, if you get rid of all of this clumsy cultural stuff, the repression of culture, then we would just all be dancing and, I mean, you know, see, we would all just be lovey-dovey. Homer knows better than that. Something else is happening. What something is keeping us at peace? But it's not because we're peaceful. It's because we have these structures. And what, are, what do they consist of? Then he, he says, so first of all, we come to a point which is a very dramatic point. The crowd has begun to gather. And one crowd is identifying with the clan that from which the murderer came. And the other crowd is identifying the clan from which the murdered one came. And they're getting angry. And it says, uh, the criers restrained the crowd. But you think, only barely. You see, what's going to happen? And then uh, Homer says, the town elders sat in a ring on chairs of polished stone, the staves of clarion criers in their hands, with which they sprang up each to speak in turn. Now, the staff is a sign of authority. And the one who has the staff and who holds it up, everybody goes quiet, and that person speaks and brings a kind of unanimity out of this crowd process. You see? So it's very important that this staff... Now, the two things here to notice, the polished, the chairs of polished stone and the staff. Now, because these elders have the staff and because they're sitting up on these chairs of polished stone, they are able to remain in control of the event. They are able to take charge and keep it from turning into what it threatens to turn into. Now, why can they do that? Because they're holding this staff. Take the staff, for example. Now, what if somebody said, while this man is standing up there speaking with the staff in his hand, what if somebody said, hey, you know what, guys? That's just a piece of wood. It doesn't mean anything. It would be all over. And you know what? That's precisely what Homer said in the very beginning of the poem, because in the very beginning of the poem, Achilles stood up in council with Agamemnon to complain about the fact that Agamemnon had taken his war bride away from him. And he stood up holding the staff and he said, you know what this is? It's just a piece of wood. And he threw it on the ground. And the Greek camp broke in two. And you know what? It's just a piece of wood. It's true. It has no inherent sacrality. The sacrality, it's endowed with a sacrality. It's like the stock market. If you believe it, it goes up. And if you don't, it doesn't. And this is just precisely what made Plato so nervous, you see? Because here, Homer is revealing what it takes to keep a city at peace. What is it? It's the sacred that clings to certain people or certain artifacts, certain pieces of furniture, you know, certain, certain things have sacrality. And they make it possible to keep order. And that would be fine, except Homer has already shown, has already had one of his major characters announce to the world that it's just a piece of wood. And this was what, you see, would have troubled Plato. We're getting dangerously close to saying something we can't afford to say, which is that these structures of sacrality are totally arbitrary. They only have meaning because we have endowed them with meaning. 
all I want to call attention to here is that the city at war and the city at peace are not that different, except one has these tokens of sacred system and one does not, and Homer has made it pretty clear that they're arbitrary. Now, one last image from Homer, and I'll leave Homer behind, and that is towards the, the last thing he describes on the shield is a dancing floor, and here's what he says about it. A dancing floor as well he fashioned there. Young men and the most desired young girls were dancing, linked, touching each other's wrists, the girls in linen and soft gowns, and the men had daggers golden-hilted hung on silver lanyards. Well, the dancing is going on. But notice the little detail here now. We have daggers, but now the daggers are golden-hilted, and they're hung on silver lanterns. So now we have armed men dancing, but the arms now are ceremonial. We have a ritual process going on. This is not just a dance where, oh, let's have a party. This is a ritual. It's a ritual reenactment of something. And Homer goes on, trained and adept, which are terms you would use for the military. Trained and adept, they circled there with ease. The way a potter sitting at his wheel will give it a practice twirl between his palms to see it run. It's a practice. Or again, says Homer, in lines as though in ranks. Ranks is a military term. They moved on one another, magical dancing. And this is like the old line dance. They close in and come back and close in and come back. A few years ago at the Renaissance Fair, I saw a, a, one of these dances. It's an ancient Scottish dance. It was unbelievable. It was done with these, these batons, these wooden batons, and they clack and hit. And it's literally, obviously, a reenactment of a battle. But it's done so stylistically, it's, it's absolutely riveting. It's absolutely riveting. It's spellbinding, which is what this is. Because here's what Homer says. All around the crowd stood spellbound. This is dancing, but what is it? It's A, a reenactment of some past thing, a celebration now. It's perfectly harmless, but at the same time, preparation for the next time. Just as in Homer, the, the funeral games of Patroclus. I don't know if your, your Homer is fresh with you, but the funeral games of Patroclus are precisely the same thing. So let's go back for a second now and think about poetry and Plato. Plato was afraid that people like Homer, but maybe not so much like Homer as heirs of Homer's, Athenian heirs of Homer's were contemporaneous with Plato, that, that they were being careless, that they were talking about these things in a sloppy way so that it would be possible for somebody to realize that the distinction between the gods and the mortals was arbitrary, that the distinction between the sacred and the profane was arbitrary. And once the arbitrary nature of this distinction is recognized, it's gone. And without it, the city at peace would be the city at war. And, and I think Plato, if he didn't recognize that in explicit terms, he certainly felt it. He certainly intuited that that was what was at stake. He said, for example, Plato said, for example, in the laws, quote, one should live out one's days playing at certain games, sacrificing, singing, and dancing, with the result that one can make the gods propitious to oneself and can defend oneself against enemies, end quote. We have to live inside the cultural envelope, not ask questions about where it came from, sacrifice singing and dancing. We don't want to get into the details. We don't want to ask too many questions because 
sacrificing singing and dancing, which is just another way of saying sacrifice, myth, and ritual. Because when Homer or any of the ancients, Plato or Homer, any of the ancients talk of singing, they're talking of the poetic work. And the poetic work is putting into words the, uh, the mystery of the past. So sacrifice singing, what for Plato is sacrifice singing and dancing is really just another way of talking about sacrifice, myth, and ritual. And, Pl and Plato says we just have to live inside that world and not ask too many questions. In another place, Plato says, if people are brought up under laws that by some divine good fortune have remained unchanged, for a great length of time, if they neither remember nor have heard that things were ever otherwise than they are at present, then the entire soul reverences and fears changing any of the things that are already laid down. Somehow or other, the lawgiver must think up a device by which this situation will prevail in the city. In other words, we if we're lucky enough to live in a world where all the laws and customs have come down time out of mind, as we say, all the better. Because we can't even imagine a time when, when they were not in place. And therefore, we, we perpetuate them automatically. And Plato says, if, for those who live in a world where we can actually remember, if we put our minds to it, that's the key, don't put your mind to it. If we put our minds to it, then we have to find a way to keep from putting our minds to it because we don't want to find out where it came from. What are we going to find out back then? Pascal, I've, some of these things I've talked about in the past, but Pascal was, was a deep thinker. He thought about these things. He was also a deep Christian who was a beneficiary of this other epistemology. But he was thinking about culture and being very realistic about it. And he said, you know, culture exist and we have these structures of uh, re reverence and sacrality in our in our world for example the dynasty the monarchy and all that it represents and he said we should uh, be happy we have that because it helps hold things together it's like the staff what pascal realized is that the king represented law itself but that the king was the latest representative of a dynasty that began with lawlessness, that was ushered in by an act of lawlessness, that was ushered in by a takeover, a coup d'etat, a murder, that kind of thing. He, he knew that if you went far enough back, that would be the case. This dynasty didn't emerge out of the head of Zeus, full-born, you know. It came out of a very sloppy process. And so here's what Pascal said. The truth about the usurpation, the, the usurping of power in the past, the truth about the usurpation must not be made apparent. It came about originally without reason and has become reasonable. We must see that it is regarded as authentic and eternal and its origins must be hidden if we do not want it soon to end. That's exactly what Plato said. Because it's arbitrary, we will recognize the arbitrariness of it. So, Plato says, sacrificing, singing, and dancing, don't ask where the dances came from, where the games came from. Leave it to the muses. Plato, one, one more quote from Plato, and then I'll leave Plato behind. He says, let no one attempt to disturb the small stone which separates friendship from enmity. The small stone. In other words, it's, he recognizes it's a tiny little thing, it's, a, it's little, but it means everything. 
Unfortunately, the small stone is the stone the builders rejected. It's the scapegoat. It's the victim. It's the lamb slain since the foundation of the world. We all came together, unanimity minus one. That's what gave us social camaraderie, and that's the small stone. And Plato says we must not remove that. And the gospel sets it before us. Andrew McKenna, in a paper he wrote, actually he wrote a paper on Pascal. That's why I know these things about Pascal. Uh, I feed on my friend's work all the time. He's, he learned about these things the same way I did from uh, René Girard's work. And uh, so uh, Andrew says that Pascal and Girard both realized that human culture uh, is, quote, an illusory but efficacious hierarchy of differences and representations of differences of images whose fanciful prestige keeps humans from slaughtering each other. Fanciful prestige. You see, when I get in trouble, you get in trouble. We call 911. We want somebody to show up. He's got a uniform, a badge, and a whistle. And, we, and if all goes well, he shows up, his uniform, his badge, and his whistle, and lo and behold, everything's okay. And we begin to enter a world in which the fanciful prestige of these tokens, uniform, badge, and whistle, you see it's been deconstructed. And so it's a pretty terrifying world, really. He, there was something to what Plato was saying. In Homer's story of what's going on in the shield, there's the chairs of polished stone and the staff. And these things are the key to everything. And Plato was concerned that people like Homer would be entirely too garrulous about those matters. And somebody might actually notice what Homer made explicit in the first part of his poem, which is that that staff is just a piece of wood. And then we would be in terrible trouble. Plato said we have to remain in a world of, uh, characterized by sacrificing, singing, and dancing. T.S. Eliot, in the four quartets, represents Eliot's quest for roots. I mean, it represents a lot more than that. But in part, it's Eliot's journey into his own roots. His roots as a human being, his roots as a poet, his roots as a Christian, his roots as, in terms of his own genealogy, and in East Coker, he goes back to the land of his ancestors. And East Coker is this little village, and he goes to visit this little village. And I was fortunate enough to visit that little village last year myself. And I went to this very place he's talking about. There's a little, there's a little church there, and the church and a, and a graveyard, and then there's this field. And Elliot stood at this field and looked out over it and thought about his ancestors and thought about the past. And the reverie begins, with one glaring exception, under the, under the inspiration of the muses. And it almost ends that way, but something else comes in. It's not quite, it, it doesn't completely shatter the muses' spell, but it's pretty interesting. And here's what he says. He says, in that open field, if you do not come too close, if you do not come too close, on a summer midnight, you can hear the music of the weak pipe and the little drum and see them dancing round the bonfire. Now, Eliot didn't reiterate the phrase, if you do not come too close, for no reason. You see? We always like to look back. We always like to think, oh, the Celtic tradition or something like that. 
How marvelous. You know, I was reading something yesterday. Uh, uh, this woman, Ann Ross, wrote a book on the Celtic tradition. She says in there, and she, she's a very fond of the Celtic tradition, she says in there, the central image, she said, in the Celtic iconography, the old pagan Celtic iconography, she said there's one image that keeps recurring. And she says, in fact, I would say this is the definitive image in Celtic iconography on a par with what the cross is for Christianity. And it is a severed head. Well, I mean, I just share that with you. So anyway, so Elliot is there looking on this field and thinking about the hoary past, you know. And he says, if you do not come too close, this is what Plato says, you might come too close. And what do you find? You know, then you've got a hip bone in your shovel or a severed head in the, under, the, under this little uh, sacred shrine you've uncovered. If you do not come too close, on a summer midnight, you can hear the music of the weak pipe and the little drum and see them dancing around the bonfire. Well, bonfire, you know what the, where the word bonfire comes from? We talked about this when we did Elliot, but you know where the word bonfire comes from? Bonefire. Now, that would be very glaring, except the, the French came just in time for us to think of it as bonfire, as a good fire, you know. I remember reading Chesterton. Chesterton has a book on Chaucer where he says uh, the French Frenchified English just enough to make it capable of, of a poetic expression. <laughs> so here you have the French, the French language coming in just in time to save us from what would otherwise have been a pretty troubling uh, uh, reference here. The bonfire. What's the bonfire? It's the fire. That's the bonfire the night before. You know, in, in uh, the uh, Lord of the Flies, they have a bonfire. And the next day, and, and uh, there's a murder. And next day, Simon is killed. And next day, Ralph says to Piggy, you know, Piggy, that was a murder. And Piggy gets all upset. Don't say that word. You say, what's a, a bonfire is a fire that's a, gr that's a great bonfire the night before. And the next morning, it has bones in it. And nobody bothers to ask any questions because Plato told them not to. You see them say, I'm being playful. But you don't want to get into it. It's a bonfire. So Eliot says, if you do not come too close. We're back to Plato here again. The fear that the poets might unearth something. Now, the reason I'm getting into all this in such a long-winded way is because this is precisely what Virgil did in the Aeneid. And what's even more fascinating is that he realized he had done it. He tried not to do it. He was driven by a recognition. This is why Virgil deserves to be regarded as, as a great prophet out of the, out of the pagan tradition. Because he, he, he saw in a way comparable to the way Jeremiah saw, you see, or 2nd Isaiah. He saw these things. And he had no context for them. But he couldn't fictionalize them enough to keep what he saw from entering his poetry. And one wonders, at the end of his life, he wanted to burn the Aeneid. And one wonders why. Poetry can reveal things. And, uh, and Virgil, I think, is, a, is a, a remarkable example of somebody who revealed in spite of himself. He didn't want to. He wanted to revive the myth. He wanted to labor under the tutelage of the muses, but something else got hold of him. 
in the New York Times a year and a half ago, there was a story about a ritual slaughter of goats in, in Mexico, uh, which began this way, past the Nissan dealership and the Tehuacan Ford, just beyond the pastel-colored tract homes going up on the edge of town, the slaughter of the goats has begun again. And it's a story about an ancient ritual that happens at a certain time every year, and all the herds, herdsmen from all around bring these huge herds of goats into this little hacienda corral, and there for a week, two weeks, sometimes more, they slaughter these goats just as fast as they can. It's just an unbelievable scene of carnage. And it says, the story says, on the first and last days of the slaughter, there is still a dance, dancing the goat. Now remember, Plato says, sacrifice singing and dancing. And I want to stay with this notion of dancing because Eliot brings it up in his poem, and there's some other things that we'll come to later on. So there is a dance called Dancing the Goat that goes along with this ritual. The New York Times says, And each afternoon the goat killers rise up on their knees, as their fathers did, to pray at their chopping blocks for the Lord's protection. So it's a, it's a religious ritual. But it says, quote, Some of the dancers have begun to forget their step. And no one seems to remember why one of them holds a flaming chalice toward the sky. Some in the courtyard say this may be the last of the rituals, or if there are going to be more, there'll just be a few more. They've begun to forget their steps, and they can't remember why they held the flaming chalice to the sky. Now, does this mean, now what's happening? Are we, what kind of memory is going on here? The mother of the muses is memory, and the epistemology unleashed by the Gospels is aletheia, to stop forgetting. So what's going on here? It's, it seems like they're not being able to remember. They're not remembering their dance steps. They're not remembering why they held the flaming chalice to the sky. But if you went back 200 years and you said to somebody, why are you holding a flaming chalice to the sky? In all likelihood, they wouldn't understand why you were asking the question. It's not, a, it's not as though they once knew and now they don't know. It's now that they're asking why. You see what I mean? The question has arisen. Why are you doing this? And that's the question. What is going on? This is the question Plato didn't want to have asked. You see? What is it about that staff and that polished chair of stone, you see, that makes it so special? Don't ask. You see, just perform these things. Well, why... Now, are they forgetting? Well, they're forgetting because, quote, it has been six or seven years since the matancheros, the butchers, could slash the necks of a thousand goats each day and let them stagger about the patio bleeding until they died. Because of the protest of animal rights campaigners in Mexico City, the killing is now done with guns, thick black livestock pistols that leave neat holes in the goats' heads. Now, how much catharsis can you get out of that? How much sacrificial catharsis can you get out of that? You see? And, and then you say, well, now they're forgetting their dance steps. Why are they forgetting their dance steps? Because they're using the... I mean, I'm, this is, I'm painting with a broad brush, but you see what I'm saying? The sacrality goes back to the bloodletting. And once that bloodletting is cleaned up in some way, then the whole, sac the whole sacred system begins to uh, collapse. The ritual reenactment of the sacrificial event loses its cathartic power. And so they forget their steps. They can't remember why this is. It's not going to last much longer. And why? Because the animal rights campaigners in Mexico City 
have complained, and I'm on their side. But what's the animal rights campaigners? It's a very attenuated form of the gospel revelation. It only occurs in Western societies. It comes out of this Western empathy for victims, which, has, which is rooted in the, in the biblical tradition. And it produces civil rights movements, anti-war movements, movements for gender equality, etc., etc. It comes right out of this tradition. It nowhere else do you find it. The animal rights campaigners are a extension of that. And so you have a clash here between these two worlds, the world of myth and the world of aletheia, the world of the gospel, the world of concerned with the victim. So... Uh, in any event, one last thing on this, which is uh, we're told here uh, by the New York Times, quote, there's little recorded history of the slaughter and some dispute over the prevalent notion that it supplanted rituals of human sacrifice that existed before the Spaniards brought their goats and stockmen's guilds to the New World. But to view the slaughter as a way of butchering goat meat would seem to ignore the intensity and seeming symbolism that takes place. So th there's a reference here to the fact that it was might have gone back to human sacrifice well. Of course it did. All animal sacrifice does. And then the question is, why is it now goat sacrifice instead of human sacrifice? Was it, well, the Spaniards came and brought their goats. And this means that the, the Aztecs had to wait for the Spaniards to bring goats before they could shift from human to animal sacrifice. Didn't they have anything around that would do, you know, a coyote or something? No. In a way, the New York Times here is both myth and truth. It's both, it's a poetic it's that kind of poetic blend of myth and truth. The truth is that the transition from human sacrifice to animal sacrifice coincided with the arrival of the Spaniards. Not because the Spaniards were representative of, of St. Francis, you know. But in spite of themselves, they carried with them, in spite of all of their venality and heinousness in their own way, you know, they, at one level, they carried the venereal disease that we all heard so much about, but they carried another virus as well, and that is the gospel virus, in spite of themselves. And lo and behold, not long after they got there, the rituals of human sacrifice were transformed into rituals of animal sacrifice. And now when we look back on it, because we can only see it in materialistic terms or in some kind of... Uh, and, and we make it a point not to see what the gospel is doing to human history... We look back and we say, well, it must have been the goats. You see what I mean? Well, it's that kind of thing. So we're, we're talking about memory and its power to free us. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I will lead you to the truth, aletheia, and the truth will set you free. And that's precisely the truth that Plato didn't want us to get into. He wanted to orbit that truth and to remain in orbit, because the, orb the, the orbit was predictable, it was ordered, it was uh, culturally structured, it was civilized, and there will no doubt be moments when we will be nostalgic for it. So let me go back to Plato saying, let no one attempt to disturb the small stone which separates friendship from enmity. You know, when Jesus was crucified, Pilate and Herod, who had been enemies, became friends. That's the small stone that separates enmity from friendship or that turns enmity into friendship. Now, the problem is, of course, that the New Testament does something quite radical. It does what the poets could never have done. So Plato's anxiety was misdirected to some extent. He had no intimations of what the gospel was 
going to be. But in the Gospel of John, there are two passages in Scripture I go to right now. One is in the Gospel of John. Jesus says, when I'm lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. In other words, when the Lamb slain since the foundation of the world is finally revealed at the center of things, then an empathy for victims will begin to be aroused in us. And in spite of ourselves, this is not because we're nice and we have more empathy than our ancestors, it's in spite of ourselves. We would rather generate the old kind of social solidarity at the expense of the victim, but we find that more and more and more we can't do it or can't do it as well as we used to. Another version of that is in Luke 8. No one after lighting a lamp hides it under a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a lampstand so that those who enter may see the light. And then he says, For nothing that is hidden will not be disclosed, nor is anything secret that will not become known and come to light. This is the bold announcement that that little dark hidden part at the center of the philosophical orbit will be exposed. And then Jesus goes on to say, Therefore pay attention to how you listen. For to those who have, more will be given. And from those who do not have, even what they seem to have will be taken away. And it would take several sessions for us to really plumb the depths of that. But to those who have, who have begun to see that light that emanates from the revelation of the Lamb slain, for them they will be given more. This has not only spiritual, but I would say epistemological, meaning it has to do with our capacity to know what's really going on. It opens up recognitions about ourselves and the world uh, and introduces a much wider panorama for us. But it also has some dire consequences for those who have not. That is to say, for those who still try to live in a world that's more or less the one Plato's prescribed, sacrifices singing and dancing, or as I said earlier, sacrifice myth and ritual, to, that world is shrinking, you see. For example, the, the goat slaughterers in Mexico, they were on the edge of it, and it swallowed them up. You see, that world is contracting. Now, poetry is a great and noble profession. The question is, under whose tutelage does the poet work? Under the muses? or under the paraclete? Is it a quest for truth aletheia, or a quest for the kind of truth that the muses provide? And modern poets, some of them, are working under the tutelage of the paraclete. And when they do, they see things that would have shocked Plato. W.H. Auden, who was doing the paraclete's work, he, he was a poet under the paraclete's inspiration in a very powerful way. Great poet, I think. And he wrote the, sh the Shield of Achilles. And here's what he saw. Thetis is Achilles' mother. She's looking over the shoulder of Hephaestus while he's fashioning the, the shield. And here's, here's the way the poem goes. She looked over his shoulder for vines and olive trees, marble well-governed cities, and ships upon untamed seas. But there on the shining metal 
His hands had put instead an artificial wilderness in a sky like lead. A plain without a feature, bare and brown, no blade of grass, no sign of neighborhood, nothing to eat and nowhere to sit down. Yet congregated on its blankness stood an unintelligible multitude, a million eyes, a million boots in line, without expression, waiting for a sign. This is the world without the primitive sacred, still trying to reconstitute itself in the old way. Out of the air, a voice without a face proved by statistics that some cause was just. Isn't that something? In tones as dry and level as the place. No one was cheered and nothing was discussed. Column by column in a cloud of dust, they marched away, enduring a belief whose logic brought them somewhere else to grief. She looked over his shoulder for ritual pieties, white flower garland heifers, libation and sacrifice, and there on the shining metal where the altar should have been, she saw his, by his flickering forge light quite another scene. Barbed wire enclosed an arbitrary spot where board officials lounged, one cracked a joke, and centuries sweated for the day was hot, a crowd of ordinary decent folk watched from without and neither moved nor spoke as three pale figures were led forth and bound to three posts driven upright in the ground. The mass and majesty of this world, all that carries weight and always weighs the same, lay in the hands of others. They were small and could not hope for help, and no help came. For what their foes liked was done. Their shame was all the worse could wish. They lost their pride and died as men before their bodies died. She looked over his shoulder for athletes at their games, men and women in a dance, moving their sweet limbs quick, quick to music. But there on the shining shield, his hands had set no dancing floor, but a weed-choked field. And now finally the stanza on the social breakdown. A ragged urchin, aimless and alone, loitered about that vacancy. A bird flew up to safety from his well-aimed stone that girls were raped, that two boys knifed a third, were axioms to him, who'd never heard of any world where promises were kept, or one could weep because another wept. This was written in 1952. Look around, you know, look around. And finally, the thin-lipped armorer Hephaestus hobbled away. Thetis of the shining breast cried out in dismay at what the god had wrought to please her son, the strong, iron-hearted man-slaying Achilles, who would not live long. Well, it's a terribly grim poem, and it's meant to be, and it's meant as a commentary on all that goes before it. It's suddenly seeing it without any of the mythology, and without any of the sacred, it's Plato's nightmare come true. Now, <clears throat> the poem I really want to more or less end with is one that I've been quoting for years and years, Howard Nemiroff's poem entitled To Clio, the Muse of History. Clio's one of the muses. And uh, her... her portfolio is history. She tells the story of the human past, but she tells it as muses tell it. 
And the epigraph to the poem is this. On learning that the Etruscan warrior in the Metropolitan Museum of Art is proved a modern forgery. So, he says, quote, One more casualty, one more screen memory penetrated at last to be destroyed in the endless anamnesis. Anamnesis means the remembering, the recollection. Screen memory, that's what the muses provide us, a memory that's veiled. Here's one more screen memory penetrated at last to be destroyed in the endless anamnesis, always progressing, never arriving at a cure. That's a definition of philosophy. Always progressing, never arriving at a cure. And Nimrod goes on, My childhood in the glare of that giant form corrupts with history, for I too fought in the war. He great male beauty that stood for the sexual thrust of power, his target eyes inviting the universal victim to fatal seduction, the crested and grieved survivor long after shield and sword are dust, has now become another lie about our life. Smash the idol, of course. Bury the pieces deep as the interest of truth requires. This is the old gesture. Smash the idol and bury the bones. And it starts all over again. You see? Eliot has a passage about this that I won't get into. But but in any event, you have the gesture, which is the gesture that starts the whole thing over again. Nevertheless, he goes on. And you may in time compose the future smoothly without him, though it is too late to dis disinfect the past of his, of his huge effigy by any further imposition of your hand. And now he talks to Clio most directly. And this is the passage I've quoted a thousand times. Tell us no more enchantments, Clio. History has given and taken away. Murders become memories, and memories become the beautiful obligations. As with a dream interpreted by one still sleeping, the interpretation is only the next room of the dream. And I have always until this week wish that the poem had ended there because that's so powerful. It's a definition of myth. And I've always thought, why didn't he end it there? Because then he has this other thing that, that it kind of trails off. And now I've been converted to the wisdom of the poem. I suddenly this week saw this last stanza. It goes like this. For I remember how we children stared learning from him unspeakable things about war that weren't in the books, and how the museum store offered for sale his photographic reproduction in full color with the ancient genitals blacked out. Now, I, what I realized this week is that that is a tremendous commentary on the 20th century, because we see this, and we're troubled by it, and we think, what is it? And we think, oh, I, well, it must be the genitals. That must be the problem. And everything, and that's been the 20th century. You see, that's the, 20, that's the Victorians, that's the psychoanalysts, that's the gender ide ideologues. Everything, is. oh, that must be the problem. It's our way of avoiding it. It's our way of avoiding It's our way of exercising our moral muscles and our int intellects without getting to the point. You see? 
And we spent this entire century doing it when we weren't killing each other, which is the other thing we did. And they're related. You see? If we had seen what it was, it had to do with why we were killing each other. But we focused on the genitals. And some wanted to cover it up, and some wanted to expose it. And it didn't matter, because it, it was beside the point. <laughs> you see? The 20th century, right there. The hypocrite. there's another New Testament word, which is hypocrite, which my own private etymology is, I mean, the prefix is hupo, which means under, and the, the root word is crisis, which means a judgment or, or a crisis. So a, a hypocrite is someone who has become preoccupied with a pseudo-crisis. When, in fact, the real crisis is right there staring you in the face. And I would say we in the 20th century have, are hypocrites, not because we're duplicitous, but because we found a pseudo-crisis. And we have been working that thing for 125 years, thinking that was the issue. Psychoanalysis was invented by people looking at hysteria, and hysteria was interpreted in terms of genitals. It was inter interpreted in sexual terms. And then you get the Victorian age, you get the psychoanalysis and all of its uh, progeny, and then you get the gender ideology which is going on today. All of that is a tremendous hoopo crisis, 20th century. So I have to go back. One of my treasures is a letter from Howard Nimroff's wife giving me permission to quote him in the book. He's dead now. And I wrote to her asking, and, and she just wrote back this nice little note saying, you're Everybody else charged me a arm and a leg to quote. <laughs> she said, just go ahead. It's a treasure of mine. I love his poetry. And here's a stanza I didn't even recognize until this week. I think he did it perfectly. The thing is, we have this moral unease. And we know that something's wrong. And we know that something has to be uncovered. You see? Something has to be revealed. Something has been veiled. It has to be unveiled. And so we thought, well, it must be the genitals. And we know that it, the unveiling of it is a moral mandate. Or the veiling of it, if we go back, if we're Victorians or something. Either the veiling or the unveiling is a moral imperative. We know that, and we know that we're under some kind of moral imperative. So we'll have all of this moral energy that we suddenly have... Uh, urging us on, we'll focus it on this issue, pro or con genitals, you see. And the question is, what's going on? And so I would take us back. Uh, I'll quote to you something written by uh, Jean Dulemont, which uh, is the following, quote, It might easily be thought that any civilization, in this case Western civilization from the 14th to the 17th centuries, which was besieged or believed itself to be besieged by a multitude of enemies, Turks, idolaters, Jews, heretics, witches, and so on, would not have had time for much introspection. This might have been quite logical, but exactly the opposite happened. In European history, the siege mentality was accompanied by an oppressive feeling of guilt, an unprecedented movement toward introspection, and the development of a new moral conscience. The 14th century witnessed the birth of what might be called a scruple sickness. That would certainly have been what Nietzsche would have called it. 
a global phenomenon that soon reached epidemic proportions. It is as if the aggressivity directed against the enemies of Christendom had not entirely spent itself in incessant religious warfare despite the constantly renewed battles and an endless variety of opponents, end quote. Now, why do I quote that to you? Because it shows that at a certain point, the structures of the old sacred began to collapse. And at that point, the social reflexes were in place, and we began to look for scapegoats. And we found them all over the place. Turks, Jews, witches. And we tried our best. And it didn't work. The point of this is it didn't work. We did it, and it didn't work so that while the witches were burning, while the Jews were being persecuted, while the Turks were being slaughtered, we were having this guilty conscience. That's the gospel at work. That's the gospel at work. The paraclete always wants to know, how about the victim? Where's the victim? Have you thought about the victim? And the muse wants to tell a la-di-da story about it all. In gospel terms, or in the New Testament terms, you could say Europe was beginning to hear the cock crow and realize, oh, I'm a crucifier. I threw in with the crucifier. I became one of the persecutors. When De La Mou talks about suddenly there's this introspection and a new moral conscience arising, you see, something new is happening. An interiority is, is occurring at the moment that the cock crows. And so you have that. And poetry has to do with understanding what that is. On the other hand, there's been this theme throughout this morning, which is the dance. Uh, this comes to me. I want to quote to you something that Cesario Bandera says. Cesario Bandera is another friend of mine whose work I'm exploiting shamelessly. Cesario talks about the modern secular dance of poetry. And I want to re read what he says to you and, and just make a comment or two and then I'll be finished. He says, Our modern so-called secular dancer still dances the same sacred dance, still avoiding any direct encounter with the sacred. But he can now take liberties that would have horrified Plato because the sacred dance he is dancing has become largely irrelevant. The thunder of Jupiter, with which our brave secular dancer loves to believe he is dealing, is only a faint echo of the old one. In reality, does it make much sense to tiptoe around a sacred presence that has lost most of its bite? I, I'm thinking now, you know, we were just talking about the genital business. I'm thinking of, a, this is borders on scapegoating, I guess, but I'm thinking about Allen Ginsberg's Howl. I don't know if any of you, I don't, I don't recommend it, but I mean, it had, it had a certain place in modern poetry. It was a, a supremely genital kind of event, literary event, uh, and Howell was a perfect, you know, it's just as though this was what liberation was, as though this was the truth that was going to set us free. And it had this tremendous sense of self-importance in that it was a daring thing to do, it was a challenge to the prevailing deities, you see, the powers that be. So what comes of it? This is what Cesario is talking about. These gestures, because they're about irrelevant things. And the old sacred has been 
has been completely undermined by the gospel. And so we can stand up and speak contemptuously of the gospels and flaunt these old structures with absolute impunity because the very gospels that we despise have destroyed the power of that thing that we nominally are challenging. And so, Cesario goes on. Naturally, our secular dancer is not fully aware of all that. In fact, he no longer even knows why he is dancing the poetic dance. All he perceives is that his daring steps do not bring about any great disaster. A perception that prods him on to even higher levels of unnecessary, though fascinating, daring. He therefore comes to the conclusion that he is engaged in something where there are no limits to his creativity. He is filled with the emotion of having found a privileged realm of boundless freedom. He knows nothing about the source of his creativity or the logic of his newfound freedom. In his ignorance, he sees everything in reverse. Creativity and freedom become a result of his daring, a conquest of his defiant, boundless spirit. End quote. Well, that's a little bit of, a, of an aside here at the end, but I wanted, because it, I was fascinated by how it resonated with this notion of the dance, and I wanted to try to bring us into some sense of where, the, where we are in the modern world in terms of various poetic uh, gestures. So now what I want to do is go back and look at some of Virgil's early poetry, which indicate very clearly that he is intuitively aware of more than it is safe for an epic poet to be aware of. And he nevertheless, later on, launched on an epic enterprise, which because he was aware of more than was safe to be aware of, is one of the most interesting pieces of literature in the world, I think. But next week we'll just talk about things that he wrote before he got around to the to the Aeneid.